Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. This word redemption is a really, really rich word. It carries with it the sense of rescue. It carries with it the sense of putting right what's been made wrong. It carries with it the sense that people have been kidnapped, enslaved and they've been rescued and set free. The Bible is the story of the greatest act of redemption the world has ever seen. When God created our world, he created a paradise for us, but we broke it. That brokenness looks like anger and hatred, evil and crime, betrayal and injustice. Prophecies of old told of a redeemer who would make all things new. Did God's redemption plan actually work? Let's find out as we join Dr. Corbett for the final in this short series introducing the one and the only, The Redeemer. We've been going through a series on redemption. This series has been looking at probably the greatest theme in all of scripture. And this word redemption is a really, really rich word. It, it carries with it the sense of rescue. It carries with it the sense of putting right what's been made wrong. It carries with it the sense that people have been kidnapped, enslaved, and they've been rescued and set free. And redemption carries that, the enormity of that. And this morning I hope to show you that the subtext to this is that what God is able to do is take unbelievably bad and turn it, transform it into unimaginably good. And that's what we're going to see. I want to invite Paul and Debbie back up. So come on back up, guys. And, and I want to just share with them, <clears throat> to talk with them at least, because uh, while ch the children were here, some of the things that I want to talk about are probably not appropriate for the years of children. But let's start with uh, 1998 or 1997 and coming into 1998. Uh, Paul, you were going over initially to support some missionaries that were already there. And uh, how did that work out for you? <laughs> there there were, were another couple that were over there and uh, they, um, uh, we, we'd been over there and uh, I, I first went in 1995 on a, on a short-term trip to Vietnam and only half of me came back and it was like, I came back ready to pack Deb and the kids up, we're off to Vietnam and so, woo, 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 woo. And so we ended up uh, going uh, two years later as a family uh, but we connected with this other couple there and uh, they were, uh, they'd not long been there but we just had a, had a sense we were called to Vietnam and we can just go and support these guys and um, uh, we thought, hey, we'll just do your paperwork, <laughs> we'll do whatever yeah. and um, anyway. Fast forward, um, we, we'd returned back to Tassie and, uh, and then um, they were meeting with some, some uh, leaders there and then they were, you know, um, placed on a house arrest and had to leave the country. And okay, now let's, let's back up a bit here. Debbie, you and Paul had quite a comfortable life in Newcastle. Yes. <laughs> um, 19, in the 1990s, Paul was a high flyer. Yes. Uh, Paul, before you came to Tassie, I don't think it's uh, going to embarrass you at all, this embarrassing question. Um, how much were you earning? What was your annual salary back in the mid-1990s with the job that you had? 
uh, six figures. I think the last my last year was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that I earned. So you were doing pretty well. It wasn't bad for then, yeah. Not, not, wouldn't be bad for now, but it was pretty good then. Wouldn't be bad for now. There's a lot of people think it was... It'd be lovely for now. All right, now. So you, you, you thought you'd take a risk. You, uh, and, and with that risk, leaving Newcastle and, and moving to, to Tasmania, why did you come to Tasmania, Debbie? We actually came um, because we felt the call of God to come here and to support another family who'd just pioneered a church in Hobart. And they were praying for a couple to come and we felt called and we connected and that was the initial reason why we came. Okay, so Paul, you left your job and what was the plan for you? Because obviously you've got to survive, so what was that plan? Well, I thought, well, <clears throat> I've been in business for quite a few years and sold, sold that business um, in, in uh, Newcastle. But we'll buy another business down here to support ourselves while we're supporting these guys in ministry. Okay, and, and that must have gone really, really well, Paul. Not, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it was a business that went belly up and we went from a six-figure income to no, <laughs> no, uh, no income and to the point where Deb had to actually go out and, and get a part-time job because me as the, the great breadwinner that I always was, I couldn't do it. It wasn't working. So let me get this right. God called you to Tasmania. You were on a six-figure sum. You, you, got, you, you buy a business with, with you know, the intention of maintaining that lifestyle. You lose the business, essentially, and now you've got no income. What kind of God is this that you're actually serving? <laughs> it was a God who I questioned <laughs> and said, um, God, you called us to this place. We know, we know you called us to this place. Uh, what gives? How bad did it get, Deb? Uh, it took 12 months to really get it. For the first 12 months, we're questioning God, and it's like, God, we did this out of obedience. We came to Tasmania out of a call from you. We believe we were meant to be here, but why? And we kept asking why. And until we got to the point where it was like, why is not the right question? And uh, so after 12 months, because we were a little bit thick, but after 12 months, we really got to the point of like, we just said, look, are we called here? And the answer was definitely yes. Is God a good God? And the, the answer was definitely yes. But do we understand what's going on? And the answer was definitely no. But what we did say to God at that point was, God, we know you called us. We know you're a good God. We know you love us. And we, but we don't understand what's going on. However, whatever you're doing in us, just do it. And at that point, we really surrendered and just put a stake in the ground because, you know, a good thing will keep you till the honeymoon's over, but a God thing will cause you to put a stake in the ground. That's what we did. And did our circumstances change? No, but we changed. And we dug into God and we discovered a God we'd never knew before. So, Paul, you, you increasingly, in the frustration of, you know, trying to resuscitate the business and keep it going and it was down to barely a, a flatline pulse beat but in in the midst of all that you you had this strange sort of thing that popped into your head because Vietnam came on the scene what what did you begin to think the future might look for you like ah, good question um there was a growing passion for Vietnam. Something was happening. You know, when, we, when, when the Lord called us to Tassie, we, we, we knew we were always called a mission. And we thought, 
Tasmania. Why are we, why are we going to Tasmania? Um, but that was that was what we call our Bible school of life. And so it was. It really like um, things change. Where now this is no. This has not happened to anybody here. No one ever has ever got angry at God. But but, but that but I did. But but as Deb shared, I mean, we we just said, God, whatever you're doing, do it. And that and there was a shift, and it was God, you're doing something. Mm. And so it was a matter of how long. Okay, and, and, and it was almost, yeah, it was all flatlining. There's hardly a pulse in this business and we'd actually gone even into debt at that particular point, sucked all their money, went into debt. Um, but it was like, you know, there will be an end to this. But in the middle of all that, all this stuff that was happening, um, I went to Vietnam again. And I think I went uh, two more times to, to Vietnam and uh, God just provided in miraculous ways and it was like... I don't know how this is going to happen. But All right, so you did a, was it the journey course or whatever it was, um, and there was a question asked at the end of that, Paul, that kind of upset you a lot. What was the question after doing this journey course, which is about, you know, steps to becoming a missionary? missionary yeah. um, I, I was asked the question, uh, okay, you, you reckon you're called a mission. What, what are you doing about that? What are you doing to actually sow into mission? Now, this is asking, asking me a question and I had no money. <laughs> so I said, well, what are you doing about sowing into mission? If you reckon you're okay, you, yeah, you want to get involved in mission, you want to support mission. And so that was a challenging question. And there, were, there was another missionary that um, was looking for support. Um, and we made a decision to support them. And I remember the amount, it was $60 a month. And it was like, we don't have $60. But that was the figure that the Lord impressed upon us to support them and and from that very moment we we uh, never missed a beat we were able to the money came in and um, it continued to come in and for other things money came in and came out of left field and it was like from places you know our mind kind of tries to tries to work it out god you could do it this way but he always tended to do it a different way debbie is it fair to say that the hell experience you went through in coming here was necessary for you to be doing what you're doing now? I would say 100% yes. Um, because, you know, you dig deep wells when you're in a place where there's nowhere else to go. And I think those wells resourced us so that it would launch us into what we do long term. Because when we got to Vietnam, like just because you're in a call doesn't mean it's all wonderful. And when we got to Vietnam, there was challenges there. But, you know, the, the things we learnt through the journey of Tasmania, anchored us even more when we got to Vietnam. Let's fast forward this. You hit a, a speed bump in your own soul a few years ago where the fact that you were raised by a single mum had had a dramatic effect upon you more than you realised. Mm. How so? You know, um, my father was, uh, was a drug addict and he became a paranoid schizophrenic. So he was in and out of mental hospitals. So my mum had to deal with that and three children. And I was the oldest. And I don't think my mum actually meant to do this, but she would share with me at 11, 12, 13 years old. And at that age, you really don't know what to do with it. So my, my thinking was, I have to make this better for my mum and I have to make her feel better. So anytime she shared, my thought pattern was, 
I have to make her feel better now. I have to make her, you know, happy. And what I did from that point was carry that through my life. And I didn't realise the effect it had on my life. So everyone in my world, if there was an issue, it was now my responsibility to make it right. And I didn't realise how much that was part of who I was until five years ago it all came crumbling down. And do you want me to share? I'm happy to share. So um, my mum being... Basic. My father died, and she, so that meant my mum was on her own completely, which was like a release. But also that whole thing of her being on her own, lonely. My responsibility. I got to look after her. Then um, now, don't get us wrong here, but Paul's mum was also very sick, and they, my dad and his mum died around the same age, uh, same time. Sorry. So my mum and his dad connected and we'd already had kids, we'd already been married and had kids and then they got married. But well, you know what? We thought it was a great thing because they were actually having a true marriage together because they'd never had one on their first marriage. Anyway, for me, now that responsibility of my mum is gone. I've got my, you know, someone taking care of her and it was relaxing. But five years ago, so they were married for many, many years, but five years ago we got a phone call to say his dad's very sick. And so we come home and he's not just sick but he's dying. And when he died, my automatic response went back to, now my mum's alone again and I've got to fix this but I can't. I can't fix this. Then, and that was in um, April 2014, and then in December 2014, my sister, my baby sister, who has, is not a Christian, but had a long-term partnership as a husband, uh, three days after Christmas, he just dropped dead in front of her, and she turns to alcohol. I've got to fix this, but I can't. So this is another ball just dropping and my control thing of making things life for my family is just coming apart. And then um, one month after that, my da our daughter, who's been in an abusive relationship, husband, uh, for over 10 years, got her husband to ring and say some other stuff that had been going on which has really just broken them and I'm like, God, I have to fix this for my girl but I can't. And it was like another ball. And then the icing on the cake was two months later when my mother went to the doctor and she found out she had cancer and I can't fix this. So all these things around me had happened and I went from the control, I've got to fix it, to closing down. And I went through a period of just going into a deep depression and someone introduced me to a game on the because I don't play video games, but Candy Crush, and God bless you if you play that, but, you know, for me it became a, something that didn't require anything of me, and I could just go there and nobody wanted to um, talk to me or need anything from me, but, you know, after I do that, it was like, this is not solving anything, I'm crying out to God for help. After several months of that, <clears throat> we had a visiting uh, pastor friend of ours come, who's also a professional counsellor, he took one look at me, he said, Deb, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm fine. You know us women, I've that's what that we before. say. And so my mum, uh, sorry, this pastor said, you're not fine, Deb, I know you well, what is wrong? So it was like, blah, and it all came out. And he said, you know, you're that close from a breakdown, you need to stop and get whole. And what happened in that period is as I'm 
sitting at home, which is not something I do, God spoke to me very clearly. And I was sitting on the lounge and he said, Deb, what are you doing? You're better than this and you know me better than this. And whoever told you that you were the burden carrier, do you realise that is actually my portfolio and you've taken that from me? How can I heal you? How can I do things in your life while you're holding that portfolio that actually belongs to me? It was such a profound revelation in my life that immediately I deleted the game and I said, God, how do I get whole? And I'm going, I, I, I. And God said, no, you're not getting this. I am the burden carrier. And through a series of teaching me how to just rest in God and get received from God, I was made whole. So that's, there's a long story in it, but sorry I took a while, but that's Mm. it Mm. in a nutshell. And I am whole because of the power of God. Mm. He's our burden carrier, you know. Yeah. Would you please thank Paul and Debbie Hilton. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Today I hope you hear a couple of things. I hope you hear that there is a, a certain reality that we're, we're dealing with and, and the Bible describes it accurately. In fact, this is really what I want I wanted to share with you briefly now. It's this, that the Bible actually is the story of reality. It's the, the story of reality and it, it has a beginning, it has a middle and it has an end. When God created the world. He created the world perfect, just completely perfect. And this story of redemption, this story of reality really, is one in which the universe was just exquisitely fine-tuned for the preparation for God to create mankind. And when God created mankind, the very first man Adam, created out of the dust of the earth, was created with an unbroken harmony with God himself, with nature, and with each other, Adam and Eve, our our forebears. And this unbroken harmony between God and each other and nature was in a world that was full of peace and love and incredible beauty and and God gave mankind kind of the keys to be the vice regents that is the people who who he said rule this earth on my behalf and he only gave them one condition and that one condition was this respect his commands just respect his commands respect my commands God said to them and and that was the one condition that they had and so when they rebelled that harmony that they once had with God, with each other and with nature was, was completely broken. And that brokenness kind of broke the world. And this brokenness now translates into just this horrible, horrible thing that uh, we see now in the world where we can see that the world now has a very deep shadow that's been cast over it. And it's over mankind and it's over every human. Every human's been affected by what we might call this, this deep shadow that's, that's over us. And we can see it. God, in the very, some of the earliest chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, he, he describes the condition of, of mankind. He says, when... 
the Lord saw the wickedness of, of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, was evil continually. And, and it's a period of time when the Bible describes that there was, that there was murder, there was rape, there was all kinds of things happening that were just abhorrent. These things included, and we, we know them, we see them in our world today. We see anger and abuse and hatred. And, and these things, we, we've all been hurt by them. So we know, like I'm not telling anyone anything, that this is the, the world that we live in. It's a world that's broken. And when, when something's broken, it really means it's not, it's not the way it's meant to be. And so this world, this world of brokenness, the prophets that God sent along described God saying, one day I'm going to fix this and I'm going to, I'm going to do it by sending a redeemer. And the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to draw a little bit out of here, he said this, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, and this is how the world was described. On them a light has shone. And it was, this is Isaiah chapter 9. And you might know Isaiah chapter 9 because it's the famous Christmas card verse. Because it goes down the next couple of verses and it says this, describing the Redeemer. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the prophets foretold of the Redeemer coming in what is described in language as a perilous mission. And this perilous mission would result, the prophet said, in him, the Redeemer, actually suffering horribly at the hands of the enemy. And the picture that it paints is that from the very beginning... Mankind was taken captive by this kidnapper, the enemy of our soul. And so the Redeemer would come in and he would pay a price for it. And, and Isaiah goes on and it says this of the Redeemer. He was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. And this is the, the picture that the prophet said, but in a bewildering way, this is what would happen to the Redeemer, the one who would put everything right in the world. They poetically summed it all up with an expression describing how the Redeemer would make the whole world new. He would make everything new and they said it like this. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. All things will be made new, the prophet said. And the Redeemer would do this. The Redeemer would do this. Now, centuries later, when it almost looked as if the plan of redemption would fail... The Redeemer did come and it, again, it looked like a complete failure. The last of the disciples of the Redeemer, John, he, in, in 65 AD, he was banished to an island having seen all his colleagues and heard of his colleagues who'd been martyred. 
and it looked pretty hopeless. At that time, the Roman government under Caesar Nero was executing Christians by the thousands. And he was exiled to this small Mediterranean island called Patmos, and it looked pretty bleak. And the result was that if this redeemer had failed, because after all, he said he was going to put everything right, and everything wasn't being put right. It looked hopeless. And the question that must have been going through his mind, and at least through the minds of some, is what have we done? We thought he was the redeemer, and yet everything's going bad. How is this going to work out? And then, in a moment on that island, the Apostle John was caught up to the island of Patmos, where he's caught up into the the throne room of heaven. And... In the throne room of heaven, God who had promised through the prophets that he was going to put everything right has a judgment seal to finish off the whole thing of redemption, the whole thing of putting everything right. Redemption means to put it right, to rescue that which is lost, to restore that which has been damaged and taken. Where where he sees God, the judge, who has to finish his judgment on the evil that's been, been brought about in the world and he has a judgment scroll. And the Roman emperors had a scroll and they had it sealed and they broke the seal and they would read out the judgment usually a pretty nasty judgment and now God's got a scroll like that and it's also sealed it's got seven seals on it in fact and it's a picture of him about to to judge and do something but the question is here where John sees what's going on in heaven it says this and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll And to break its seals. Who is worthy to do this? Someone who has paid the price of redemption. And if you can understand this, that it says no one on heaven or earth or under the earth, no one living or dead, was able to open the scroll and look into it. Because whoever this person is, not even God the Father himself, he's got it there, he's about to execute judgment. But... And finally vanquish evil. And, and it says that John began to weep loudly because of this. Because here he is, all his hopes were in Jesus. All his hopes were that Jesus, when he died on, that, on the cross that first Easter, he was the one putting it right, just as the prophets had foretold. He was the one for, who from the, the very beginning of Scripture where it says, this is what God would do. It was his hope that it was Jesus. And now the question is, who can do it? And he's going, oh, no. <laughs> We failed. Jesus must have failed. And one of the elders said to me, it says here, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is one of the prophets had said, when this Messiah, this Redeemer comes, he'll be from the tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be a descendant of David, and, and this is what John is hearing, the root of David, the descendant of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, John says, which you might remember when John the Baptist, as we, we've just celebrated baptism this morning, and when John the Baptist was about to baptize Jesus. He saw Jesus on the shore of the Jordan River and he said this, Behold, the Lamb of God. He called Jesus the Lamb of God. 
And now John's hearing this expression again in heaven where where it describes him as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. It's, It's symbolic language. It wasn't actually a lamb, but it was Jesus being described as a lamb. And he goes and he takes the scroll from his father. And in taking the scroll from his father, we read this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So John is seeing this in heaven and in Revelation 5.9, it says this. And they sang a new song. Hear this song? They sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your hand, by your blood rather, you ransomed. And that word ransom is the same Greek word for redeemed. Ransomed people for God from every tribe, language and people and nation. And this is the song that's being sung in heaven. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. That's all we have time for tonight. To order a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Redemption Part 4 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, prophecies told of the Redeemer who would suffer and die at the hands of the enemy. It looked as though the redemption plan had failed. But when the Apostle John was caught up into heaven as recorded in the book of Revelation, he was shown the culmination of the Redeemer's work. It begs the question only you can answer, is Jesus Christ, God's Son, your Redeemer? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.